Hey, I'm Sam. Hi, I'm Ashley. And you're listening to All Bodies, All Foods, presented by the Renfrew Center for Eating Disorders. We want to create a space for all bodies to come together authentically and purposefully to discuss various areas that impact us on a cultural and relational level. We believe that all bodies and all foods are welcome. We would love for you to join us on this journey. Let's learn together. All right. Hello, podcast family. Thank you for joining us again on another episode of All Bodies, All Foods. Um, It is Ashley and Sam. We're back for another episode and just want to thank you for joining us again, you all. Um, And today we really wanted to bring in some education for you. Um, We've been hearing a lot, and probably you have too, a lot of conversation about some lesser known eating disorders or lesser known eating issues. And so we really wanted to bring in and kind of explain some of these terms that you might be hearing. So um, we received a new DSM, it's the DSM-5. And for those of you that don't know, that stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's what we as clinicians kind of diagnose from when we're working with any sort of mental issue, a mental health issue. Um, And so in that new DSM, we finally got the diagnosis for binge eating disorder, which was a huge diagnosis um, for us to have. And prior to that, so we had had anorexia nervosa, um, which were we would really see kind of the restriction in the body image piece come up with that. We had bulimia nervosa, where we might see the restriction in the binge purge come up with that. And again, the body image piece. And then we had what we also called eating disorder not otherwise specified or EDNOS. And that's kind of where that binge eating prior to our new DSM had fit. I've got Sam here with me today because we kind of wanted to talk about um, the different things that we got. <laughs> yes. The, the, the different language that we have now um, to kind of yes. work with our clients. Yeah. It's great to have the language. And I have to mention also that it's so impressive that when we opened our doors in 1985, Renfrew was already treating binge eating disorder. Yes. We, we couldn't diagnose it, but yeah. th- I mean, this has been around forever. It's not like binge eating disorder just right. appeared. This right. has been around for decades and decades and longer than that. And we have been treating it. The good news is that now that we can diagnose it, we can better understand it. There's research now around it. There, um, you know, we can fund it. When you have a diagnosis, you can actually get funding which yes. is really important, especially because of the disparities and accessibility issues in healthcare right now. Binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder. Yeah. I think when people think of eating disorders, they think of anorexia. And yeah. there are so many other eating disorders and eating issues yes. that people struggle with. I'm sure folks have heard so many different terms in the media. There are so many different journalists that do stories and news spots on these different terms floating around. And it's confusing because it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. do I have an eating disorder? Um, Mm -hmm. Do I have disordered eating? What's the Mm -hmm. difference? You know, how do I know that maybe I'm getting into the territory of something really serious? Especially because every, you know, disordered eating is so normalized in this culture. So this episode is so needed. And every time I, create a post on social media about lesser known eating issues. Yeah. It practically goes viral every time. <laughs> and that yeah. tells me 
that people want to know more about yeah. this. And uh, there's yeah. only so much I can share in a 30 second TikTok. So let's do this episode. Let's talk about these issues so that we can recognize them. You know, you can recognize if someone you know might be struggling, yeah. but also if you might be struggling and understand how these things are treated right. and break down the stigma around them. Yeah. Hopefully with this, we can give you some language. And like Sam was saying, we can give you some better understanding of kind of all of the things that we're seeing. Um, and I want to just say, we we recognize that every person that comes in is an individual and has their own kind of individual story, right? And so it's you know, diagnoses are helpful because they can tell us where to go, you know, um, and they may not encapsulate everything that you might be experiencing or that your loved one might be experiencing. So we just want you to know that we we know that, we see that, we see you and hear you um, and hope that you find this material helpful. Right. Well, most folks aren't going to fit neatly into a category yeah. And we know that as clinicians, we know we know that. And you know, sometimes we do need to diagnose for funding purposes and things like that and mm-hmm. the way I see diagnoses it's sort of a way to communicate generally what's going on for someone, but everyone is so unique. And if you don't fit neatly into these categories, you're not alone. Most people don't. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, so we wanted to break down a few of these terms for you all. Um, so the first one, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but the first one I want to dive into is just binge eating disorder. Um, because again, it, it is not new <laughs> by any right. stretch of the imagination. And so binge eating disorder, we're going to see someone that might um, eat more than kind of a quote unquote normal amount in one sitting. Um, they, they may eat more quicker, more rapid than usual. They may not realize what they're doing or kind of, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Sam? Like, um, well, there's sort of a dissociation. Dissociation. Yeah. 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 It's, and I've heard it described. There've been qualitative studies, which by the way, those are studies where people are interviewed and they can just talk openly about their experience. They describe it sometimes as being in a trance, losing track of time, yeah. So it does sort of have this dissociative quality to it yeah. and there's a loss of control. So yeah. the person who is binge eating while they're binge eating, it just feels like total chaos. And yeah. I can't, it's like, I can't stop. I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know how yeah. long I've been doing this. They're just sort of in a trance. Yeah. And really, and I will say also, it doesn't really matter what the food is that the binge is happening on. It could be anything. Anything. Um, Yeah, absolutely anything. There also might be that sense of shame attached to it. um, And there might be some body image concerns um, with with the binge eating. Yeah. Right. Usually there are. It's not uncommon for someone with binge eating disorder to have a history of dieting. Right. A history of yo-yo dieting, weight right. cycling, um, a history of thinking that certain foods are good, certain foods are bad. Like these are binge foods. I'm only allowed to eat these foods when I binge. Right. Very common. Any other thing about binge eating that we should touch on? Folks with binge eating disorder are very distressed by mm-hmm. having this disorder. And, you know, we've heard, we've talked 
before about weight stigma, but there's also binge eating disorder stigma. Yes, there is. That, you know, those with binge eating disorder experience, um, I think sometimes it's this internalized stigma, this shame that what's wrong with me, that I can't control myself. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of shame around it. Um, Oftentimes there's internalized um, weight stigma if someone's in a larger body. So Mm -hmm. there's all all of these oppressive forces that are also affecting the person psychologically and medically. I mean, we know weight stigma um, and binge eating disorder stigma has an effect on our health. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that's so important for everyone to understand that these oppressive forces are harmful to us medically and psychologically. So victims of weight stigma and weight discrimination, binge eating disorder stigma, it's impacting them across various domains. Right. And it can feel, because it's kind of impacting so many pieces and parts of someone, it can often feel so overwhelming and I don't really know how to get out of this and this is a behavior that I'm in and I'm just staying in it because it's too much for me to even think about getting out of this, right? Like it's just, it's so, it can be so overwhelming because it can literally impact every part of your life. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it doesn't help that folks with binge eating disorder, you know, might go to the doctor and the doctor tells them that they need to lose weight. Yeah. Yeah. And and what we know about treating eating disorders is that we need to take the focus entirely off of weight loss yeah. while we're treating an eating disorder. There's other markers of health and well-being that we can use to measure progress. So, um, and I should also mention that binge eating disorder can happen to anyone in any body size. Yes. Let's not forget that. Yes. So um, it, you cannot possibly look at someone and know what kind of eating disorder they have. You can't look at someone and know how severe their eating disorder is. Right. And I, you may have mentioned this already, Sam. I can't remember if you did, but binge eating disorder is the most commonly diagnosed eating disorder. Yes. Um right? We see that more than we see bulimia, more than we see anorexia. And often I think though that culturally, and maybe this has to do with media, this has to do with, you know, the different movies that you see, but our culture gets stuck on, on anorexia, the diagnosis of anorexia, which is, I mean, neither of them are great for us. You know, I mean, they're both very harmful and we need to work on those, but, um, Anorexia is actually the least common diagnosed um, eating disorder. Isn't that correct? And isn't it interesting that most people, when they think of eating disorders, it's like the face of eating disorders is anorexia. The thin, white, teenage, urban, suburban girl with anorexia. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fascinating. It's like any movie that comes out. I remember on Netflix, To the Bone came out. And it was a chance to spread eating disorder awareness. And the movie had some positive aspects. However, it was another, it was another example of, Mm. you know, perpetuating that myth that, you know, that first of all, that anorexia can only happen to young, thin, affluent white girls. 
Right. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, anorexia right. can happen to anyone. And by the way, it can happen to anyone in any body size. Anyone in any body, um, anyone of any ethnicity. Um, right. We are seeing this. Yeah, I, I really wonder if, if w- is it our field? Was it culture? You know, we really kind of, as a society, like you said, we, we've had this view of eating disorders being a particular person in a particular body type. And what we know is that is just not true. Right. Any person um, of any background can have any eating disorder. Right. Absolutely any. Any gender, um, yeah. any sexuality, yeah. race, ethnicity. I almost every interview I've ever done, whether it's with a journalist or, you know, a a news anchor, I always try to throw in the phrase, eating disorders do not discriminate. Yeah. Yeah. They they can happen to anyone. You know, there are folks who I've heard say, well, I can't possibly have an eating disorder. I'm in my fifties. Yes, you can. Yes. Yes. And as a matter of fact, we treat so many folks over the age of 30 at Renfrew that yes. we even have an entire track called 30 something yeah. and beyond because yeah. we can actually create a little community yeah. with folks who are coming in for treatment who are over mm-hmm. that age. Yeah. So if you're listening out there, I know there's someone out there listening who thinks they're too old to have an eating disorder. Guess what? You're not and you're never too old for treatment. True. I've seen folks recover in their 70s. Yes. So it's 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 never too late. And I think that's another misconception. Oh, I can't go to treatment. There's just going to be a bunch of teenagers there. Right. No. You know, there really aren't. <laughs> I mean, it, it, right. is a, it is a wide variety of ages that we yes. work with, you Absolutely. know. Um, yeah, we de- we definitely see the gamut of ages in there. So just just want to say that again to you all. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter um, male, female, non-binary. Eating disorders can happen to everyone. Right. Um, yeah. So hopefully today we can give you some language um, to maybe just do some internal checking, um, maybe language if you know somebody that's struggling um, with an eating issue. We hope this is helpful. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So there are so many lesser known eating disorders. Um, Actually, I think it's fair to say, you know, eating disorders other than anorexia are not as well known. Are known. Yeah, I mean, right. No. I mean, we could talk about no. bulimia. We could, we could, uh, you know, we can certainly talk about OSFED, um, which is the umbrella term for when you don't fit neatly into the traditional eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder. OSFED, thankfully, we have that diagnosis for someone mm-hmm. who's clearly struggling but, mm-hmm. you know, the criteria is strict for some of these other eating disorders, but someone could still be really suffering right. medically, psychologically, socially. Right. Um, but they're like, well, I don't, I don't fit. I, I don't fit. Right. In this the, doesn't, the this doesn't fully, box. right. This doesn't encapsulate what I'm actually experiencing. Right. So luckily so, we have OSFED as yeah. a diagnosis we can actually write down and tell insurance like this is yeah. what 
this person is dealing with. But there are a lot of different terms that fall under OSFAD that might have been, you, know, you might have heard them before in the news or just in passing, but maybe we can talk a little bit about yeah. the umbrella of OSFED. Those terms. Um, I do want to say OSFED stands for Other Specified Feeding and Eating Disorder. Yes. Um, so Thank you. One, <laughs> yeah, I know we get in our clinical brains and, and start talking that way. So yeah, yes. so the OSFED category was also new for us in the DSM-5. And so some of the terms, I'm just going to throw out some names here, Sam, and then maybe yeah. we could just like go through those. Absolutely. Okay. Let's do it. Um, so some of the terms that y- that you all may have heard um, on TikTok, on social media, um, you know, in your psychology class, we have all sorts of things. So night eating syndrome, yes, um, diabulimia, which again we'll mm-hmm. we'll kind of explain these, you all, um, orthorexia, uh, drunkorexia, mm-hmm. and a recent one, bigorexia. That's yes. B-I-G, bigorexia. And then I think um, atypical anorexia. Yes. Am I missing any or are those kind of the ones we've heard? Well, I think though, let's talk about those because yeah. I think we're hearing some of these terms a lot. Yeah. And, but I will say, you again, you don't even have to fit these terms to have OSFED. OSFED right. is so you know, diverse yeah. that, you know, you could have a very unique symptom presentation and still yeah. be diagnosed with OSFED without it being drunkorexia, without it being diabulimia. Right. But yeah, so let's, maybe we can start with atypical anorexia. Sure, because sure. This, so, right. So this is such an important topic um, and it's caused a lot of, um, it's a very hot topic, I think, amongst the clinical and medical world yeah, because there is a push to eliminate it completely and mm-hmm. just put it with anorexia yes. because the reality is atypical anorexia, someone who has atypical anorexia is struggling with the exact same behaviors and as symptoms anorexia. as anorexia. So yeah. someone who is terrified of weight gain you know, has obsessive thoughts about food and weight, um, someone who is severely restricting and trying to lose weight, um, it's all consuming, it's affecting them medically, it's affecting them yeah. psychologically, socially, their world has become very small. And the only difference between atypical anorexia and traditional anorexia nervosa is that atypical anorexia is diagnosed for someone who is not technically quote unquote underweight. Correct. Right. And so it, it implies that, and I think sometimes folks who are diagnosed with OSFED slash atypical anorexia, it feels so invalidating Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. it's like, what is this? Some lesser form, some mm-hmm. less serious form of anorexia? Mm-hmm. And a qualified clinician will know because yeah. they're up to date on the research. Qualified clinicians know that atypical anorexia is just as dangerous, just as severe 
as anorexia nervosa, if not more so. Yeah. So the studies that have come out about atypical anorexia, it's like there's this, so the, the studies tell us that folks who are, you know, losing weight, restricting, malnourished, they are mm-hmm. suffering psychologically. Some of them are suicidal. They're having mm-hmm. all kinds of medical issues. And the misconception is out there in this world that if you have some weight on you, that somehow you're immune to any kind of medical issue. Almost as if, oh, anorexia is not going to hurt you until you're underweight. And that is false. Right. And in fact, if someone who is quote unquote overweight goes to the doctor, sometimes we'll say that, and they lose weight um, and the doctor doesn't know how they lose weight, often they get praised for oh. that weight loss and not asked, what are, what, what are you experiencing? How did this happen? Can you tell me a little bit more about what's going on? Right. Um Instead of those types of questions, they might get praised for losing the weight and then move on. And then yet again, feel completely invalidated, yet again, feel completely unseen um, and not know where to go, right? Right. Like that might feel very, very confusing for them. Absolutely. And it sends the message, well, I guess I should just keep doing what I'm doing. Right, right. Which, Which often they no, something's not right here. Like something, this doesn't feel good. Something is not right and I need help. Right. Because they, again, I, I talk about this so much in so many trainings. You can be malnourished at any weight. Right. And malnourishment comes with its own set of psychological and medical issues. Yeah. And so those with atypical anorexia, if, if anyone out there is listening who knows that you have this or you've been diagnosed with it or think you have it, I just want to send you so much compassion and validation Mm -hmm. that your struggle is real. You deserve help. It is not a less serious form of anorexia. No. No. It is dangerous. It's hurting you and there's help for it. Yeah. And so I I get that there are, unfortunately, a lot of medical providers you know, there are mental health providers, unfortunately, out there as well, dietitians who dietitians, yeah. might not get that. Yeah. And and I hate to say it, but unfortunately, eating disorders are just not covered the way they should be covered in the, in most of the training and education for people in right. this field, right. unless you specialize in it. Right. And you even know? that sometimes can be hard. Like, where where do yeah. I go? I mean, Sam, you and I are both clinicians, and yeah. I distinctly remember having a substance use class, like a whole class pulled out on substance use and focusing on that. And we had nothing on eating disorders, right. nothing. Right. Um, it's not uncommon. Yeah. It's yeah. not uncommon. And so uh, a lot of people in the field, in the eating disorder field, end up learning about eating disorders through a very specialized internship or a residency. For instance, I got most of my training through my postdoctoral residency at Renfrew. And that's when you're flooded with all of the information and experience and you do your own study around it. But it's yeah. a major issue in, in graduate schools, medical schools. Eating disorders are just not 
they don't get the attention that they deserve. I mean, these right. are eating disorders are one of the most deadly psychiatric yeah. disorders in the DSM, yeah. second only to opioid use disorder. So yeah. why aren't we, why isn't there an entire course on eating disorders? Right. That has been my question for years. Yeah. Folks with eating disorders are at elevated risk for substance use. They're at elevated risk for suicide. How are we not learning about these in graduate school? So um, there needs to be more on it for sure. And that's why I think this podcast is so important, not to toot our own horns here, but I hope this is one way we can spread education about about eating disorders. And I'm so glad you brought up substance abuse because I think it brings us into our next topic, which is drunkorexia. Drunkorexia, yeah. And and before we get onto that, I just want to say, truly, if there is anyone that has, if eating, if body image, if this stuff feels, or, or the lack of eating, or the purging, or the overeating, if any of this feels consuming and like it is literally impacting you from every angle of your life. You, you're you unable to do the things that you used to enjoy doing. Um, you're constantly thinking about this. Please reach out. Please reach out. Yeah. Call us. We're here to help you. Call a friend. Let somebody know that you need support. Right. I promise you, your people will want to support you and we're here for you too. So please reach out. So just wanted to throw yes. that out there, Sam. No, thank you. Um, and I'll, I'll even add into that. If you're a college student, with by, which by the way, you know, that's the age group where onset yeah. of an e- eating disorder is pretty common. Yeah. Most colleges have a counseling center. Yeah. I just read a study. I think 22% of students have no idea where their counseling center is on campus. Oh, wow. Yeah. Go find your counseling center. Yeah. Go there. There usually are therapists and psychologists. Go there. Say, I'm struggling with food. By the way, Renfrew, we do a lot of trainings at college counseling centers. So yeah. hopefully you're at one of the counseling centers we, <laughs> yeah, you know, we've gone into. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Um, but, you know, the counseling center is free. Right. Usually there's a certain amount of sessions that are free. Every university is different, but just want to remind any students out there, we know the age of onset for eating disorders, adolescent, young adult period. So college is like really mm-hmm. right in there. a sensitive yeah. time, vulnerable time for folks, which is, you know, um, I think a segue into drunkorexia also yeah. because yeah. Yeah. drinking on campus is yeah. widespread and yes. drunkorexia I'm sure many folks maybe have heard that term in the news. There have been yeah. quite a few news outlets that sort of did a spot on drunkorexia because mm-hmm. it's kind of attention grabbing. It's a little sensational, the term, it is. and everyone yeah, kind of wants term. to know what it is. Yeah. Um, but we there's a push to change the name of it okay. to food and alcohol disturbance. FAD, F-A-D for short. Okay. And um, there already has been some research on Mm -hmm. food and alcohol disturbance, Mm -hmm. aka drunkorexia, because we want to better understand what's going on here. Because it's clearly something many, many people struggle with, but it's not a legitimate psychiatric diagnosis 
yet. Yet. Now, I predict in the DSM-6, we might see food and alcohol disturbance. Yeah. So when this episode comes out, um, I wonder if it'll land in the next DSM. (laughs) I hope it it does. Yeah. Yeah. Because I cannot even tell you how many people dabble in drunkorexia and and then there are folks who really, really suffer with an extreme version of it. Mm-hmm. It's on a spectrum. Yeah. Like most things in life. So when we talk about drunkorexia, what we're really talking about, this is someone who is suffering from a substance use disorder yeah. and an eating disorder. And so the presentation yeah. that we typically see, and college students, by the way, are at high risk for this, especially college students who identify as female. So Mm -hmm. it's an attempt to avoid weight gain by saving up all your calories during the day so that you can binge drink later. Right. And it's really, it's really dangerous because there are a lot of complications that happen with, with drunkorexia. Um, You can get a spike in your blood alcohol level and Mm -hmm. end up blacking out you know, um, it's associated with malnourishment, vitamin mm-hmm. and mineral deficiencies, alcohol mm-hmm. poisoning, mm-hmm. drinking on an empty stomach, mm-hmm. just also really, you can get yourself into situations where, um, you know, you feel traumatized, you mm-hmm. uh, don't remember what happened, you're, right. it's very disorienting. Right. And right. so, um, so, so drunkorexia is um, also associated with anxiety, depression, sleep disturbances, and other yeah. mental health issues as well. So um, I think what one of the things that fuels drunkorexia, especially on college campuses, is the fear yeah. of the freshman 15. Okay. We hear this all the time. By the way, the freshman 15 has been debunked. You can look it up, mm-hmm. right? Um, because there's this, I mean, there's just this fear in general in our culture around weight gain. Yeah. That, that weight gain always means I'm an unhealthier version of myself if I gain weight. Meanwhile, college time is such a transitional period. Most people, their bodies are going to change. That's right. natural and normal. Right. Your and patterns, your behaviors, your everything is shifting. everything. Everything, everything is changing. Is changing. Yeah. yeah, your stress levels. It's and, which all play right. a part. Exactly, in, in what your body does. <laughs> exactly. So the studies around the freshman fifteen, what they found is because of all those changes—stress, sleep—you know, there's all these transitions that are happening. Your body might respond by gaining weight. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they found actually was that your bo- your body sort of settles out once it sort of gets into a ru- in a routine, and mm-hmm. um, and and the, the weight gain is not a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. And I think this culture treats it like it is. There's this belief and and this um, terrible fear around weight gain that folks are willing to severely restrict so that they can still drink alcohol. Right. And I remember I did a post on this on TikTok and mm-hmm. it 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 got hundreds of thousands of views. 
-hmm. And people were very upset by the idea that this is disordered eating. Really? Yeah. Because there's this, it's, you know, it doesn't surprise me too much because there's this belief that, well, if I'm going to drink, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't have these calories during the day. Right. I should save. Right. And, and and there's this, there's this belief that that's healthy. Right. And the reality is, again, everything is on a spectrum. So Mm -hmm. this can happen in a way that maybe won't impact your life very much. Um, maybe there's some minor restriction and some very modest drinking, you know, and, and so maybe it's not impacting you really physically or mentally, but the reality is the more, the further down the spectrum you get with drunkorexia, Mm -hmm. the, the more likely you're going to experience medical and psychological issues from it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, on the far end of the spectrum is someone who maybe restricts all day so that they can binge drink at night. Yeah. And it just causes so many different issues. And this person is really suffering. Yeah. And so and they, many, there's so many risks with doing that. Right. Right. right exactly. Right. Yeah. So, um, so it's a thing. It's, there's a word for it. Eventually, I think we're going to have a diagnosis for it. Food and alcohol disturbance. Food and alcohol disturbance. And and yeah. like other diagnoses, there will be criteria to meet yeah. um, that'll probably be um, it's very specific. Yeah. Um, and I, but I want to be clear that, and this is true for all other eating disorders also, you don't have to meet that strict criteria in order to still be suffering. Right. Right. And you can still improve your relationship with food, your body, or with substances without having a formal diagnosis for one of these things. Right. And I think so many of us can benefit from just improving our relationship with, you know, with our bodies or with what we're consuming. Oh, definitely. Yeah. 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 So that's what drunkorexia is um, for anyone out there wondering. And um, it's so common actually, you know, with eating disorders, um, it's very common to have a co-occurring substance use disorder when you have Mm -hmm. an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. We see these two things together so much Mm -hmm. that we actually created a substance use track. Mm Mm-hmm. At Renfrew, because there were just so many people who needed the treatment for both. And what we know as clinicians in in the eating disorder field is that you cannot only treat the eating disorder and ignore everything else. Right. Because what will happen is if you treat the eating disorder, but you don't treat the substance use, then those substance use urges and behaviors are probably going to increase unless you address those simultaneously. And or they might move to something else even. Yeah. If, if that makes sense. I I at one point worked at a coffee shop and and you know, was right across the street from an in or an AA meeting. And the amount of large amount of, of espresso shots that were ordered right. in in coffee drinks for that right. stimulation, right? Like right. if we're if we don't I'm saying that to say, if we don't actually work on 
the whole picture, right? right. Um, we're, you know, our clients are just going to continue to, to feel, um, like they're suffering. I mean, it's just going to continue yeah. to, to, to be hard and to hurt for them. So, right. We kind of, exactly. we have to look at all of this, um, the yeah. substance use, the eating disorder, um, we have a trauma tract for the same reason. Exactly. Right? Exactly. We have to treat it all. And and the yeah. way we do that is we have to target the common denominator of all of yeah. these behaviors, whether yeah. it's restricting, binging, purging, substance use, self-harm, whatever it may be, we yeah. have to find the common denominator, yeah. which is usually emotional avoidance. Yeah. Yeah. And if we can target that and help people regulate their emotions, regulate their nervous system, figure out why they're doing what they're doing, experiment with new patterns, facing fears, all of that stuff, and getting more comfortable with feeling, yeah, we often see then all of those symptoms decrease. Yeah. So yeah. you cannot, if there is a provider that wants to work with you and they're like, I'm only going to work on one thing. Mm-hmm. You can expect an increase in those other areas. Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. to treat it all at once. Yeah. So drunkorexia, yeah. moving on, what should we yeah. do next? So I know. I, there, there are so many. Let's, um, let's, can we talk about night eating? Night eating? Yes. Night eating syndrome. Yeah. Night yeah, eating syndrome. Absolutely. Because I, I, well, I would just say, I find this one fascinating. I've had so many people that have maybe, um, I've worked with it, Renfrew, or in my private practice, and and we're again kind of looking at what their behavioral patterns are, what we're seeing them engage in, and um, the night eating syndrome is different from binge eating disorder. It is. It's very it's different. Very Although I feel like during assessments. So an assessment is when you go in and you meet with, you know, an admissions person and you talk about your whole eating history and everything. It's like, you know, an hour or two. I think in the assessments, people think that their night eating is just a part of their binge eating Mm -hmm. disorder Mm -hmm. and it's actually separate. So actually Mm -hmm. binge, what most people don't realize is that night eating syndrome can actually be diagnosed alongside other eating disorders. Okay. As a separate entity. So night eating syndrome is different from binge eating disorder. And um, so there's a few reasons for that. One is that someone with night eating eating syndrome, they are not engaging in binge eating episodes in the middle of the night. If they are, um, that could more fall under the category of binge eating disorder. But there's a difference here because those with night eating syndrome, what happens is they they repeatedly wake up in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and they have this thought. Mm-hmm. And this is the one of one of the things that separates it from binge eating disorder. They have a mm-hmm. thought that there is no way I'm gonna be able to fall back asleep unless I go eat something. Mm-hmm. And that's the belief that drives the cycle. And so what mm-hmm. happens is the person gets up they eat something, they remember eating it. So it's not mm-hmm. a sleep disorder in the sense that there's certain sleep disorders where you're sort of maybe sleepwalking and you'd have no right. memory of what you did. But right. with night eating syndrome, actually, you do have a memory of eating. You're conscious mm-hmm. of what's going on. 
Mm-hmm. And you eat and then you eat enough to the point where you feel like you can get back to bed. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, it doesn't really meet criteria for a binge eating episode, that loss mm-hmm. of control, um, right, the eating not, yeah. rapidly. And, and so there's very specific criteria for a binge eating episode. And yeah. so night eating syndrome, you know, I think years and years ago, people used to just call this a midnight snack. Right. But actually this causes folks a lot of issues. It's very distressing. It's mm-hmm. very disruptive to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes people don't like that they're eating in the middle of the night. They feel like um, it affects their digestion. It, it affects, right. um, they feel guilty about it. There's a lot of shame around it. And actually, um, I actually do a training on night eating syndrome and the differences between that and binge eating disorder. But from what I've discovered through the research, it seems like people with night eating syndrome aren't really disclosing that they're doing it because they're embarrassed. Mm. So they might mm. be going to their doctor and their doctor asks them, you know, do you have any eating issues? And I think people are much more likely to say, yeah, I eat, I binge eat. Um, but they're not actually, not everyone is actually disclosing that actually I wake up in the middle of the night multiple times a week and I mm. go down and, or, you know, I, I go to the kitchen and I and I eat something because I truly believe there's no way I can fall back asleep unless I do. Mm-hmm. So that so this is this is a pattern that's happening multiple times a week, right. Sam. Yeah, okay. exactly. Two to three. So the criteria, um, I'd have to look up the exact criteria, but I think yeah. it, it does happen multiple times a week. Yeah. Um, but I think the important thing is that you can have both night eating syndrome and binge eating disorder. And binge eating disorder. Yeah. And there's a slightly different approach to treating night eating syndrome because you might mm-hmm. be referred out for a sleep study. You mm-hmm. know, there are other interventions that probably mm-hmm. wouldn't be necessary with only binge eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So, um, but there are some, you know, if we look at a Venn diagram of binge eating disorder and night eating syndrome, um, one of the common features is that both in both scenarios, the person is probably undernourished. Yeah. They're, you know, they might be experimenting with dieting and weight loss. Yeah. And so the night eating could be a way that, you know, the body is trying to say, I'm not getting enough nourishment. Gotcha. Yeah. And then you sort of get stuck in the cycle of, of waking up repeatedly and, and eating. And, um, so, uh, but treatment is available and, um, you know, people can, can recover from it and then you can get a full night's sleep and, mm-hmm. um, and then you're nourishing yourself properly during the day. And, and, you know, the other issues, um, also resolve, you know, oftentimes right. with malnourishment, depression, anxiety, those intrusive thoughts, all of those improve with nourishment. Yeah. So yeah, night eating syndrome, we don't talk about it enough, but I think a lot of folks struggle with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just sitting here thinking to myself, like somebody that's listening, that's maybe experienced this before. Um, Cause I, I agree with you. I do not at all feel like this is talked about enough or a yeah. lot. I, I wonder if somebody is feeling seen, maybe. I hope so. You know, or heard yeah. for the first time. Yeah. Um, again, give us a call. 
talk to your therapist, right? Like, like let someone or your doctor. know. Or your doctor. Let yeah. someone know that, that you're experiencing this and that you're recognizing that, oh, that I could actually get help for this. Right. I don't. I don't have to continue to feel distressed about this pattern. Exactly. Exactly right. And um, yeah, I think your your doctor could be a good place to start. And yeah. this is a this is a diagnosis. Actually, it is in the DSM five. It's under OSFED, mm-hmm. night eating syndrome. There's research on it. There's there are books on it. So mm-hmm. it's out there. Do you know, do professionals know everything about it? No. I mean, that's why I, yeah. I'm passionate about doing trainings on these things. But it's in the DSM-5. You can advocate mm-hmm. for yourself and say, mm-hmm. I think I have night eating syndrome. It's in the DSM under OSFED. Yeah. You know, and you can, I think advocacy is such an important skill when it comes to your own mental health and yeah. your physical health, you know, to to go in and say, I think I know what's going on here because yeah. I listen to all bodies off it. I'm here to help you advocate for yourself. Night eating syndrome is a real oh, thing. It's, it's yeah. a diagnosis. Yeah. Well, Sam, what do you think? You want to, you want to dive into another one? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So here's one that has kind of come up recently. Um, that I I would say I've seen actually quite a bit on social media. Um, big orexia. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a new newer term. Yeah. Is um, this one in the DSM, Sam? It is not in the it DSM. Okay. So it is it is like new new term. It's new new. I think that someone with big orexia, we come up with these terms in yeah. the field because there are people who are struggling, all struggling with the same thing. And we need a word for it. And this is how diagnoses get created. Again, I think bigorexia, it might not be that exact name, but I think this pattern of disordered eating hopefully will land in the next DSM. So I just want to say about bigorexia, it can happen to anyone, any gender. Um, It's, but I, I would say those who identify as male are probably at highest risk. Okay. Given just given this culture and yeah. given toxic masculinity and and the ways men in general are taught, yeah. The you know what you know they're taught what they should look like and how they should be, and I think bigorexia is a symptom of a very sick culture, essentially. Yeah. So bigorexia is you know, when we think about disordered eating, what we're really talking about, so, you know, in, in the, in the gym world, they call it bulking and cutting. Okay. Right. But in the eating disorder world, when we really look at these behaviors, Mm -hmm. we call it binging and restricting. Yeah. And so these behaviors can become so severe and someone can become so disconnected from their, what their body actually needs mm-hmm. in pursuit of a very muscular yet mm-hmm. very lean build. Mm-hmm. And so this is called bigorexia. So it's sort of a combination of an eating disorder because we have the restricting and then we have um, the also binging. the binging. Right. 
you know, hashtag cheat meals. I'm sure you've seen those, right? Yes. Yes. There have been studies studies on that hashtag and the amount of food that, that we see associated with those hashtags would meet criteria for a binge eating episode. Yeah. So, um, so cheat meals are really just a fancy way of binge eating, saying that you're, it's a binge eating episode. So, mm-hmm. so we see um, it's a combination of an eating disorder and those very specific behaviors and body dysmorphia. Yeah. So specifically muscle dysmorphia. So yeah. this is when someone believes that, you know, well, first of all, they're obsessed with becoming muscular mm-hmm. and they continue to view themselves as not muscular enough, mm-hmm. even if other people are telling them you are very, very muscular. It's, it's, it's like they just cannot see it and cannot believe it. So there are a set of behaviors that of course on a spectrum, Mm -hmm. always on a spectrum can range from mild to very Mm -hmm. severe. I mean, just like drunkorexia, right? It could be at the far end where someone is restricting heavily, maybe even abusing, um, stimulants, you know, abusing mm-hmm. different substances in order to get that lean look, but then mm-hmm. maybe engaging in binge eating episodes when it's their quote unquote cheat day. Mm-hmm. And, and, and really the, these behaviors can eventually start to not only cause medical issues, but major psychological issues, yeah. anxiety, depression. Um, what's scary about bigorexia is that, you know, yes, those who identify as men are at higher risk. And what's scary to me about that is that we know from the research that men may be much less likely to seek help for this. Yeah. Because most men who eventually do land in treatment for an eating disorder, they often, it's a very late diagnosis. So they sort of let it go on for Mm. quite some time before they realize that they need some help. And men have a higher risk of hospitalization and even death when it comes to eating disorders. Wow. So, um, and I should also mention, 40% of those with binge eating disorder identify as male. Wow. Wow. And cheat meals are, not all cheat meals are binge eating episodes, but the amount of food in many of these situations would meet criteria for binge eating. Yeah. Because again, we're looking at an amount of food that's much larger than what someone would normally eat in that time frame and under those similar circumstances. Yeah. So, you know, folks with bigorexia, again, can happen to any gender. Um, males, those who identify as male are at higher risk, but these folks are really suffering. And by the way, their world gets very small. Their whole yeah. world is like the gym, training, getting bigger, getting leaner. And if they can't engage in that, in the gym and training and getting bigger, the amount of anxiety that comes up if they're unable to go to that training session is like off the charts often. Oh, absolutely. So intense. And and you know, sometimes we even see panic attacks come along with that. Exactly. Um, Exactly. And I would say some warning signs of bigorexia might be someone who 
continues to go to the gym, even when they're sick, even when they're injured. Um, maybe they're even ab- abusing protein powders, yeah. steroids, you know, all of these substances in order to achieve this look, this like instabod, yeah. right? Yeah. We see a lot of these accounts on Instagram and social media where yeah. also I think there's this drive to monetize their account. And there's this belief that, well, I need to look a certain way to get those followers, to get those likes. And it's just yet another reinforcing factor where Mm. it's like, okay, the more I pursue this body type, the more engagement I'm getting on social media. And that's just another factor that can feed into it. Yeah. There's been studies on that also. But yeah, I mean- these behaviors end up causing a lot of suffering um, mentally and mm-hmm. socially, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like- Yeah, because you're not engaging with your friends. I mean, you're, yeah. you're kind of pulling back so right. that you can go to the gym. Right. I think, you know, with most eating disorders, the nature of an eating disorder is it's so all-consuming that you lose touch with what's truly important to you. You lose touch yeah. of your values. Yeah. And it's and it becomes your whole identity. It can in many cases where yeah. you know someone with who's struggling with bigorexia. It's like when you look at their like if it's a pie chart of their values, it ends up yeah. being like muscles and the gym and getting yeah. lean, food, lifting weights, and you know it's you lose sight of relationships and you lose sight of the things that you truly care about. Yeah. Um, that's the nature of it. Yeah. We say a lot with eating disorders that they are disorders of disconnection. And um, we see so much of that, not only like, you know, internal disconnection where you're turning off those hunger fullness cues, um, you're turning off cues that, you know, as you were mentioning, someone with bigorexia might still go to the gym or still work out, even if they're injured, you're turning off that signal that your body is desperately trying to tell you, I need to rest. I need to rest. Right. So, so disconnection from the self, but then also disconnection, um, socially disconnection from my value system. And it, and I also want to say that it's not always an intentional thing. These can, these can really kind of develop quite unintentionally and quite innocently, you know, initially. And, and then someone might get so far in on that spectrum, as you were mentioning, that they look back and, and realize like, whoa, my life is very different um, than it used to be and or maybe than what I want. So right. if you feel that disconnection even, reach out, ask for help. Right. We're here to help you. Exactly, exactly. So um, I know there are other lesser-known eating disorders we haven't covered, but we're also running out of time. I know. I, w- I was going to say, why don't we do a second episode, Sam? We this. Yeah. Um, I think this material is so helpful, and I and I think that it would be beneficial to maybe spend some time, yes. some more time. I agree. I would really like um, in a future episode to cover RFID, yes. to cover orthorexia, and just disordered eating in general. I get the question a lot, like, do I have an eating disorder or do I have a disordered eating and how do I tell the difference? Yeah. And we yeah. can talk a little bit about how RFID is treated and 
who's at elevated risk for RFID. These these concepts and terms are just so important for everyone to know. With eating disorders, the faster you can get a diagnosis and get treatment, the better. Get some support. Eating disorders are best treated, you know, ideally quickly. Right. But we have to know we have to first know that we're struggling with an eating disorder um, and it really can get lost in this culture. So I hope this podcast can help folks out there know the signs. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sam. And, and you all, thank you so much for listening to us. We hope that this has been helpful. Um, we say this, but again, thank you for listening to All Bodies, All Foods. And if you liked the episode, if you found it useful, um, please check us out. Please rate us. Please um, leave us some comments. Let us know what you would like to hear. Let us know what you would like for us to cover. You can subscribe, rate, leave a review, and share with others. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, where you will see Sam. <laughs> you will see my face the on things. there. Yes. <laughs> um, we are at Renfrew Center. So that is our um, name on all of those um, outlets. And then if you ever have questions or want to connect with Sam or myself, you can reach us on our email, podcast at renfrewcenter.com. So Thank you all again. We greatly appreciate being with you and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening with us today on All Bodies, All Foods, presented by the Renfrew Center for Eating Disorders. We're looking forward to you joining us next time as we continue these conversations.